Hello and welcome to episode 154 of NCP. My name is David. I will be your host this evening. And with me are my guests, the NCP crew. But it's morning. It is technically this morning, yes, but the line <laughs> is this evening. But the sun is out. Just oh, look, I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> that was Richard. And look! He's back. I'm back! He's back! For those of you in TV land, you know, cross fingers there. <laughs> Stay away. Whilst I have no evidence of this, I'm willing to believe that ratings dropped by 76% whilst I was away. No, 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 no. We have, the, we have the evidence. The um, the inclusion of uh, Dr. Travis Langley yeah. uh, in- actually increased our viewership because we were able to tap in <laughs> to the long-awaited uh, academic del- a- academic yeah. um, audience ratings, which more than trumps the 2% you bring. <laughs> Look, that's a fair comp. And that was a great interview, by the way, everybody. Oh, well thanks. Uh, and Crystal? Well, it's, it's, it's always evening somewhere. <laughs> that's right. Happy hour. Let's get drunk. <laughs> I don't what drink. What do you mean? I'm already Why? drunk. <laughs> <laughs> You're already drunk. It's it's 11 a.m. I do every episode drunk. It's the only way I can tolerate being in this room with the rest of you. He's still on the cough syrup. It was so, it was so better with you out here. Mm-hmm. It's so much nicer. In I learned a lot when he was A nicer atmosphere. Yeah. Hang on. It was a nicer atmosphere, even with the world's harshest critic in the room. That's right. Hey, I, wasn't that says a lot. I wasn't that being critical. Well... What have you done with the real look? <laughs> we, we were talking about his favourite topic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we, did, we were talking about, talking Batman. about Batman. Yeah, that's true. There was a lot of Batman there. And that, Dr. Langley was so awesome that it managed to sort of offset it. Mm. So that that's right. a fair call. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so for this episode, we have uh, our, our tradition, as traditional, we have our two Dutch jackets. Um, and uh, we have a return of recast. Yay! So this, for this episode, Total recast. <laughs> <laughs> I should have called it Total Recast. You're right. Oh, I've failed in my hosting duties. From now on, I think it should be called um, that. So you have this, failed this podcast. For this for this episode, we'll be doing Star Wars A New Hope. Uh, so pretty excited. I've, I've had a bit of a preview. I'm pretty excited. You know, I just... I still can't refer to it as A New Hope. Like, it's just Star Wars. It's just Star Wars. It always will be. I don't care what anyone says. Well, for the it's chapter four, A New Hope. Okay, but it wasn't. Not that was a later out. edition. It, it was is Star Wars. Now. For the purposes of this <laughs> a, a segment, it's appropriate so that the wider audience who's listening into us actually know which one we're talking about. They all, all the rest of them have names. Why can't mm. number chapter four? Because it's Star Wars. Ah, anyway, oh, silence you. Enough. Actually, no, not silence. Nerd rage. Because you're up first. <laughs> so first, uh, get into our dust jackets. For dust jacket one, it is uh, Richo and myself. With Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle. 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 Tomato. <laughs> Hansel. Granted. <laughs> Hansel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick. Published in 1962. Uh, it was also the Hugo Award winner for that year. The birds uh, are really excited about this, I think. <laughs> Apparently they are. <laughs> they like the man in the high castle as well. And justifiable, is that? Um, and it's also number 31 on uh, Sci-Fi List's uh, Top 100. I've been wanting to review this book for a while, but it's honestly not an easy book to review. Really? Um, I don't think so. I think it is. Well, I'll just give the, the the audience a brief rundown of what the book's about first, right. and then I'll talk about some of the interesting elements of why I found it a little bit difficult to review. 
The Man in the High Castle is uh, set in an alternate reality in which the Axis actually defeated the Allies in World War II and sections of the US are now occupied by, um, well, the West Coast by Japan, the East Coast by Germany, and there's sort of a section in the middle that uh, the general consensus is nobody really wants anyway. <laughs> that is... Um, which is weird, because Boulder's in there, and Boulder's awesome. But Peter Boulder, it's a cool town. Well, well, city, the, city, I suppose. City, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the general consensus is that that's still the United States of America, but they really have no influence or power or anything. They yeah. just kind of exist. The neutral there. zone. Yeah. Um, Romulans? There are no Romulans there, but... There are no Romulans, but there are Nazis. Yeah. Illinois Nazis. <laughs> I hate those guys. <laughs> Rocky Mountain Nazis. <laughs> Yeah, so that that's the world, and um, one of the first things I want to point out is that, unlike a lot of novels of this nature, there is no, oh, you know, we've lost the war, but we're going to fight back kind of mentality to this book. Yeah, it's all over. It's like, we've lost, and, you know, Japan has taken over the West Coast, and a big chunk of this book is set on the West Coast, and um, it, it shows how Japanese influence starts to sort of overtake the culture, there, so you get sort of an American Japanese hybrid. You also get the Japanese um, obsessed with American uh, culture and American history as well. The Japanese that settle there, and uh, the Japanese in this instance are the first class citizens along the West Coast. the The novel then follows a series of characters. Um, there's no real straight linear narrative here. There's no plot A to plot B, and many of the stories aren't directly connected, uh, but there are indirect connections. Um, so the key characters that we follow, uh, the first is Nabusaki Tagomi, who is uh, part of the trade missionary um, for Japan. He's based in San Francisco. At first, he seems like a very minor character, but as the story progresses, uh, he becomes more and more important, and certain things happen to him along the way, which we'll get to shortly, which are really actually quite fascinating. The second character is Frank Frank Frink who is um, actually Jewish. Sorry, I just... I had Frank Fring in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I too had that. <laughs> Same thought. He doesn't look anything like it, though. This is good. Well, Frink's, Frink's real surname is actually Fink. Yeah. Yeah, so he is, he is secretly Jewish, but um, obviously due to Nazi influences, is tries to keep that hidden. Because basically, if you're a Jew, they'll round you up, send you back to Germany, and execute you, basically. <laughs> He is actually a factory worker who leaves his job to make jewellery. If they're all they're going to do is execute them, what's the logic behind sending them all the way back to Germany? That's a good uh, point. <laughs> Why not just send them to the East Coast? <laughs> I think it's, I guess... Uh, and they, put it on a, they put it on a show. Yeah, yeah, I'd say it's a, it's a publicity thing. Mm-hmm. You know, look at us wiping out more Jews. I mean, this is the Nazis we're talking about here. Uh, lovely after, people. Our third character is uh, Frank's estranged wife, Juliana, who is a judo instructor, uh, actually trained by the Japanese in the post-war period, and um, she's now living in Colorado. Uh, she meets a man called Joe Sinadella, who is um, an Italian truck driver. Anyway, we'll get to their story in a second as well, because this is that where parts of the thing start to connect. We also have Robert Children who owns American Artistic Handcrafts, uh, which is basically an antique business that uh, Japanese clientele 
visit because of their obsession with uh, Americana and especially American Civil War items uh, and sort of pre-war items are the are a big part of his business. We also have Mr. Baines, who is a wealthy uh, Swedish industrialist uh, who is traveling, who travels from uh, Germany to America, but there's things going on with him, secret things. He's not necessarily uh, who he says he is. So those are our, our key characters. Like I said, most of their stories aren't directly connected. However, there are a couple of things that tie what's going on together. Uh, the first thing that ties this together is the I Ching, um, an oracle uh, that many of the characters use for inspiration. In fact, to the point where I think some of them are actually obsessed. Like, they can't make decisions without consulting the I Ching. Frank is especially... Uh, Frank and his wife especially seem to be quite uh, reliant upon it. Uh, the second... Uh, sort of connecting uh, aspect of the book, and this is what I actually find more interesting, is a novel called The Grasshopper Lies Heavy that many of the characters in the in the book have read or are reading as the story progresses. And The Grasshopper Lies Heavy is um, written by an author called Aben Abs- Absenson, which posits an alternate theory, uh, an alternate history of the world in which the Allies actually win World War Two, so it's kind of the novel within the novel that is reflective more of our reality. However, the interesting thing there is that the way the Allies win the war is actually very different to the way they actually win the war in our world. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point. Is it's not it's it, as, at first glance it appears that it's like oh well he's obviously just writing about our actual real history, but he's actually not. It's like they win differently, and then what they do afterwards is actually quite different as well. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so we've got two alternate realities, and. Technically, we even have a third alternate reality. I know, which is an awesome scene. Yeah, there is uh, a scene towards the end of the book with uh, Tagomi. He goes through a, a hugely, like, first of all, a moral dilemma that then leads him to, a, I guess, a crisis. Yeah. Almost a crisis of faith in the I Ching and in um, his efforts to understand... Frank, Frank designs jewellery. And the jewellery is, at first, seemingly meaningless in its abstractness. But uh, the Japanese that see these become uh, obsessed with the meaning behind it and the, the nature of what this jewellery reflects. And, um, yeah, Tagomi actually, in becoming obsessed with trying to work out what this jewellery is, and with the, the crisis that he's dealing with, and with the, the I Ching and every, everything that's going on with him, he actually finds himself drawn out of his reality and into effectively something that is more our reality. Yeah, I think it's actually meant to be us. Yeah, yeah. Which is just which which brings us, I think, to uh, one of the underlying themes of the book. And one of the difficulties I have, like I said, with trying to review this is uh, Phil K. Dick seems to really want to deal with what's real, what isn't real, what's the nature of reality and identity, and all all these these major big issues that are a big part of the new wave of science fiction. And um, and the majority of his work, yeah, and exactly. his actual personal life as well. I mean, by yeah. the, by the end of his actual real life, Philip K. Dick believed that we were all living in a construction constructed world created by Satan. It's, I mean, that's and that's obviously the, the early influences of that. I mean, he's, I mean, his quest for through religion and stuff like that in his real world is what I mean. This book is very heavily influenced by yeah. by the I Ching. He actually wrote some of this book using the I Ching. Which, yes, which is an interesting point, um, which we, we will actually cover now, now that you've brought that up. There is a, 
I don't know. It's almost like a metatextual post-postmodern autobiography part of this. Mm. In that, as you say, he there were points in, in writing the book where when he'd reach key junctions in the story where he would consult the I Ching. Yep. Much like the characters do. And you find out later on, much like the author of The Grasshopper Lies Heavy supposedly did when writing the book. Well, he even goes so far as to say that the I Ching wrote the book. Exactly. And he just typed it. Exactly. And that the I Ching... He doesn't want to say that because he doesn't want to share royalties. Yeah. And that that the I Ching... (laughs) The I Ching therefore therefore has a personality of its own. Mm. And um, the other interesting part of that is that Dick also then... um, blamed the I Ching for what he saw as some of the less satisfying elements of the book. Really? I didn't know that. Especially the ending. He says the ending is so open-ended, but that's because that's the the ending the I Ching gave him. Come on, that's a cop-out. Um, and he actually planned... He did plan a sequel. Yeah, yeah, he did, but he just he never actually was able to finish it. Apparently there are aspects of it um, like parts of it that have been published, but I, I didn't. Well, there's, he, there's, he, he, the sequel, the some of the ideas he was going to use for the sequel, he then used in another story, which in the, the name of that story now eludes me. But yeah. it's not. It wasn't, you know, yeah. androids or anything like that. No, no. It was meant to focus more on the Germans. Yeah, apparently, not a lot of happens on the East Coast in this yeah. book. No, no. You see references to it. Um, but um, yeah, so we get these three realities, but we also get then um, other aspects of that because many of the characters in this book aren't who they say they are. They're like they're they're created false realities of their own around themselves, yeah, and they're pretending to be people that they aren't. And in some cases, they've kind of totally immersed themselves in that. So you're getting that aspect of a false reality. You're getting really realities within realities. Yes, and it's reflected in the characters. It's reflected in the world. And that, to, to me, that makes this an incredibly complex book. Whilst, whilst it seems like it's, it's a fairly simple book at, like, <laughs> on face value, like there's not a lot actually happening in the story. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it is just, um, just sort of, you know, profiles of these characters existing in this world. Hmm. On, on face value, that's, the, that's there. But then these layers of reality that exist alongside that and the nature of this grasshopper lies heavy book and the reality that that's creating and the nature of the I Ching and the, the questions of, uh, you know, chance versus, I guess, fate that is presented there. Yeah, it, it just adds layers and layers and layers on yeah. this book. And um, and as you read, at first it just seems fairly simple. Yeah, here's an alternate reality. Let's look at that world. By the end of the book and the, the revelation that um, occurs at the end, Juliana actually travels to Ab- Absinson's home, just say, actually, just say the author. Yeah, good point. <laughs> um, yeah, she actually travels to the author's home to meet with him because she has unlocked what she sees as as the mysteries and secrets of this book. And then the revelation that, that happens there just casts this whole light over basically the entire novel, mm. um, which is, yeah, really, to me, fascinating and... I do, I do like what you said about it. I, I, I didn't find it hard to read, um, but I do, I do understand what you're saying. Is I mean, at first glance, I mean, it's only you know 240 odd pages, yeah. and it's like, well, you know, that's not going to be very hard. But it does have a very uh, due, due to the the Japanese influence, it has a very interesting grammatical style. Yeah. That at first glance is like, what's going on here? <laughs> it's like, I mean, this is the master author we're talking about here. Some of these sentences actually don't even make sense when you first read them. And uh, it, but but as as I mean, at least how I found as I sort of got into it, it's like actually there's 
there's an ebb and a flow to this language that I just that really speaks to me in some way. It's what? really weird. It's, and whenever we got we cut to the Germans, I actually kind of got bored. It's like I was yeah. like, like I mean I mean I love I, I love the Nazis. <laughs> <Right? laughs> <laughs> we'll take that quote out of context. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, I had to say it that way. Um, no, but, but you know what I mean. I mean the Nazis as villains are perfect, right? And and so I, I expected to be kind of excited when we got to sort of the Nazi sort of the Nazi machinations and ooh boo hiss the evil Nazis and stuff. But I actually thought I was less interested in the, in the Nazi stuff than I was in the Japanese stuff, mainly because of that language. Well, that 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 grammar that you're you're talking about it seems to be it seemed to me at least in reading it that what what dick is saying is that the, the japanese influence is so great that really that grammatical change is is i guess the way that dick perceives japanese people who are trying to speak english that isn't their first language yeah the way he perceives them speaking and then that's become a cultural thing that has affected everybody in the in the uh, was it 15 years since the war is finished exactly because um, the war in this finishes in forty seven rather than forty five. That's exactly and, right. And yeah, and I, I, yeah, I must admit it. At first, I had the same reaction. I'm like, has he left words out here? Yeah. <laughs> but but you begin to realize, no, no, no. That's that's a cultural aspect. He doesn't mention it. It doesn't. He no. doesn't describe it in any way. Well, he does kind of hint in that in what you're saying. I mean, what you're saying is spot on. That's exactly what it is. And it's bec- and you can see that the proof of that in Chuldan, yeah. Chuldan's character who hates the, living under the, the rule of the Japanese, but he's yeah. yet still strangely fascinated by everything Japanese. And it's, and it's a kind of a twist the, of, of our modern day sort of situation with Japan is, and, and, you know, nerds in particular who just love Japan and everything Japanese and, you know, weeboo and all that sort of business. Right. And, yeah. you know, and even I'm affected by that sort of stuff, but I'd, I'd love to go to Japan. It'd be awesome. And you've got sort of the twist in the book where it's that, you know, they love the Japanese love of Americano where, I mean, they're doing, they're essentially the same thing. They just love all things, old America, original yeah. America. And so that's why they respond so the, the way they do when the jury is introduced into the story. Because yeah. um, but my, one of my favourite bits in this book is a conversation between Paul, um, who is a Japanese executive, um, and Shodan when uh, Shodan actually gives... Well, Shodan also goes through, uh, through a sort of a crisis when he discovers that, uh, which I thought was going to be a major plot of the book, but actually turns out not to be, where he discovers that some of the things he's been selling are actually fakes. Yeah. Um, and there's a massive sort of fake Americana industry going on, and, and that's and so we, he actually he is quite disillusioned about that, and so I mean he he in good faith was selling these things, and it turns out that they're fakes. And so when the jury is introduced, he really sees really not all that much interest, right? But it's he then he then has a conversation with uh, Paul, who um, he who he equal parts hates and admires um, as the up coming up and coming young Japanese. Um, and they're, they're the perfect Japanese couple, Paul and his wife. Um, and he actually has dinner with them, and he stuffs it up completely because he's just he's such you know it's he's so American, you know what I mean? Yeah. And and so he feels really bad about it. And so he gives an example of this of this jewelry to Paul to, to give to his wife to sort of uh, as a gift. And Paul gives it back, and because Paul explains uh, during this conversation, it's just it's brilliant. It's, Paul explains that he gives it back because. This jewelry is an example of new America. This is the voice that America has now gained after 15 years of Japanese rule. And it's the first original thing that they've ever done um, since then. And it actually has a, a concept called Wu, yeah. where it's actually, it's alive. It's a part of the universe. Um, and it sort of ties more into the, to the I Ching and, and all sort of stuff. Is, I mean, the I Ching is treated with utmost respect in this book. Um, so it has, so because it has this concept of Wu, Wu, uh, Paul 
he can't he can't own it. He doesn't feel worthy enough to have this item, and so he, re he requests that put that uh, Chuldan take it back um, and treat it with respect that it deserves and sell it on to other people and stuff like that. And yeah. at first, Paul's like, "What the hell are you talking about?" Um, and but then he then suddenly he he uh, he realizes that. He, this, this could possibly also be true, um, and so you mean Chuldan, not Paul. I mean Chuldan. Sorry, not Paul. Um, so, and it's, 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 it's a fascinating conversation. And then, so, so that, that's why Chuldan. Then, uh, when Mister Tagomi, who's my favourite character, uh, is, is actually is, is brief, uh, Mister Tagomi comes in after he's having his crisis of faith and tries mm. to sell the gun that he used to uh, kill those people earlier. Um, he uh, Chuldan gives him one of these items and uh, which is what then leads him which, to the yeah, portal of the other view and so and which is why then it's which in at first mr degomi doesn't see what paul's seeing um children doesn't even mention the paul conversation no but but he then also then realizes that uh, maybe he doesn't mention the woo but the, but that also that this item does this item have some sort of mystical properties and it never comes you know, dick never comes right out comes out and says that it does but he never comes out and says that it doesn't either. And the, no. the portal to the other reality is kind of a hint that maybe it kind of does. Yeah. Yeah, and um, once again, that that uh, the, the false Americana thing is mm. yet another layer of sort of reality and falsehood. Uh, you know, they, these weapons that are designed are real, but they're not real in the concept of that they don't date back to the Civil War. They're actually <laughs> yeah. newly created. And, yeah. and Frank is actually the one that actually helps create these, yeah, these yeah. weapons. There's a whole, then, in, a whole industry about it. Yeah. That. So once again, once again, we get those layers upon layers of reality that are just... Yeah. I'll, I'll be honest with you. They do your head in a bit. <laughs> really? like, like the best of Philip K. Dick's writing, they just... They just do your head in. Really? In the best way. Fascinating you say that because actually, I actually found this the most accessible Philip K. Dick book I've ever read. Well, I suppose, I suppose it's... When I say do my head in, it's it's not so much just when first reading it. It's when you stop and reflect and try to th and think about it and and yeah. and and that's what I said when I said this. This was possibly the most difficult book for me to actually to actually talk about or ever review of. And I'm glad that you've covered a lot of the things that I was hoping to cover in this as well when, in your discussions of women things because because it is a book that does make you reflect and because it's open-ended as well, it does leave you thinking and, and sort of delving deeper into those mysteries and into those levels of reality. Mm. Having said that, I, I, I find because of that, I, I actually find it the most satisfying of the Philip K. Dick novels that I've read so far as well. Mm. I enjoyed this far more than Androids. A absolutely. Absolutely. And whilst this was ranked 31, I would actually put it much, much higher than that. Definitely. Really if Androids wasn't turned into Blade Runner, which is actually a superior story. Yeah, this would be higher for sure. I was just going to say that because most of us saw Blade Runner before we read Androids, which mm. you know it makes Androids a little bit disappointing. Yeah, which but, we sort of talked about in the when we mm. reviewed it at that yeah. time. Our so. most popular episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but amongst um, Philip Kiddick aficionados, this actually is the one that um, tends to be ranked higher. Really? Yeah. Oh, there you go. See, uh, oh, for, cool. a long, for a long, for a long, you know, before really that. before Blade Runner, this was the Philip K. the greatest Philip K. Dick story. Oh, well, that's uh, and I would and I, I and I would agree with that a hundred percent. Like, um, yeah, this book really hmm. just, hmm. like I said, did my head in in the best possible way. <laughs> and to give you an example of what I mean by that, Penguin Classics when they do did their um, some of their reissues, they haven't really done anything apart from 1984, Fahrenheit 451, and they did this. Excellent. 
Cool. Yeah, but this, uh, we'll finish up with... Uh, so, like I said, Mr. Mr. Tagomi is my favourite character. He's awesome. Um, yeah, Tagomi is awesome. Uh, I, like, yeah, I like children as well. Children yeah, is... The conversation with children, Paul, like I said, is, is my favourite. It's just, it's just the language... It just the way that conversation works yeah. is just it speaks to me. Um, the other the other com- uh, the other favorite favorite scene is uh, Juliana and Joe's final confrontation. Um, ah, yeah. And uh, at, at first, actually, I've, I read this this scene multiple times now. I mean, I've read the book uh, a couple of times now. And and uh, at first, when I first read that comment, that that particular scene, I hated it. Right? I was like, you know, typical Philip K. Dick sort of anti-women sort of stuff, Juliana. Juliana has been a, you know, a great character up until this point. Now he's ruined her. And, you know, basically I had basically a, a reaction. And I've, upon rereading that, I've, I've never, I've never realized this. Well, yeah, women do get sort of kind of short thrifted a bit, a bit, you know, in this, in this book, but her disassociation with reality perfectly fits into the fact that she's, she's been the most grounded person so far up until this point. And then her reality shifts during this, Really, quite highly tension, high tension scene, yeah. and actually, nothing's perfect. It's just, it's just the way the way she reacts is the most human out of everybody, except possibly Mister Um and It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a great, great, great scene. And she does then, obviously, at the end as well. Like, yeah, and so um, they're, 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 they're she, least, she's yes. the one that has, uh, I think, probably the most profound revelation, other than Togomi. Yeah, she's the one that figures out the book. Yeah, yeah, and so, yeah. and I just, I, I she's, she's a great character, and and. Uh, uh, I have nothing against the open-ended endedness of the no, thing. I actually, I actually no. think it makes perfect sense. Um, the other, I mean, I, I don't think I don't think this book. I don't think this book is perfect. I, there is some things that um, I wouldn't say. I don't like it. I don't. I really don't like it when we say, you know, it should be this way. Yeah. So in you know, it, I would have preferred maybe a little bit more Germany um, and a little less description of Frank's jewelry making process. Like there's like two pages of them buying all their equipment and then yeah. it's like. You don't need this. And he buys some equipment, he makes some jewellery. I mean, that's all you need to know. Right? So, I mean, that sort of stuff. So there's, so there's, you know, there's some sort of things that, you know, that aren't quite as good as some others. But there is so much brilliance. There's, I mean, I'm, I'm going to put up there. There's brilliance in this book that makes up for it entirely. And oh, the other thing that annoyed me is just how easy it is to get to this author. It's like she calls him up. She drives there. Why the joke? It's like, come on. But, that's, but that, I don't know. Like, there's a great bit there because there's... You can't just rock up at Stephen King's house. No, but the great thing about that is that um, there's this whole there's this whole mythology built around how he yeah, he's because yeah. he is the man in the high castle. He supposedly right. lives in this fortress because the Germans want to yeah are going to come and kill him at any moment. Everything exactly. And then that's you find point. out that uh, that's that's actually not the case. That's he not just the lives case in the house. He just lives in the house. I loved that. I thought that was amazing. Well, I, I did like the fact that he doesn't actually live in a high castle. That it's all lies in order to yeah. throw people off. But then, how easy is it for the Juliana to find where he lives and then just rock up the next morning? It's ridiculous. And they just let her in and just make it. Oh, yeah. So yeah. So like I said, brilliance in this book, um, and they far make up for any of the any of the things that sort of that let it down. I also like the fact that the Germans have managed to make it to Mars and yet. Yes. <laughs> That's um, anyway, but uh, so um, this is this is my favourite Philip K. Dick story. I highly recommend that uh, all lovers of speculative fiction give it a read. So yes, yeah, so I'm going to give it uh, 4.5 out of 5 weeks. Yeah, like like you said, I I also consider this um, the best Philip K. Dick book I've read to date. Like I said, it's an incredibly uh, fascinatingly complex book that seems very simple when upon first reading, but it has me really, really reflecting on it. Interestingly enough, my favourite scene is the one where Togomi finds himself in this other reality. He goes into this diner. <laughs> yeah. And just expects people to get up and give him a seat because he's Japanese and that's yeah, yeah. in his reality, that's how things work. Yeah. 
and they don't they just stare at him and it's just this huge shock for him that he, he struggles to deal with and um to, to me, that's just a, an incredibly powerful and poignant scene. Other than the ones you've already mentioned, which I think are the standout moments as well. Um, yeah, no, this book really did amaze me. Um, I'm going to give it four and a half looks. Yeah, so that was uh, Man in the High Castle. Next up, we've got Crystal and Luke. And now I know the the title, but I'm not going to. I'm going to get Luke to do the name, obviously. Uh, the book is Who Fears Death by Nadi Okorafo. All right, hit it. Set in a post in a in a far post apocalyptic Africa. Um, the book concentrates on the character of uh, Onye Songwu, which translates as Who Fears Death, the title of the story. Oh, cool. Um, so, there you go. That's <laughs> that explains the title of the story. I didn't do it. <laughs> um, she is, uh, a child, she's a child of, she's a child born from rape, who is bo- um, declared an Iwu, an outcast in the, um, in this, in this um, future society. Who slowly during her teenage years um, manifests um, what is believed to be supernatural, almost bordering on sorcerous powers, fueled by her anger at being an outcast and by the uh, brutality that her mother suffered, um, and realizing that she has in fact inherited her powers from her biological father, and that it is causing much distress in the world. Um, she then tracks, makes the the rather long and arduous journey across Africa to track down and kill her biological father, who she also believes is committing great evil elsewhere. Um, that's me trying to simplify the story as much as possible. And if Crystal has is, anything, is the entire thing contained within Africa? Yes, okay, I just right. feel that the need to point out that um, she looks physically different from other people. Mm. That's how they all know she is Ewu. They can tell instantly mm. as soon as they see her. Which um, uh, Luke uh, mentioned this book uh, quite a few episodes back when mm. we did our best of 2014 episode, and yeah. I, I, that was one of the questions I had: How do they instantly know she's a child of rape? Mm. It's because that, that's the way she looks. Yes, um, sandy-coloured hair and um, skin, and yeah. freckles, and freckles. Yeah. Um, so the sorcerer is white. Yes, um, African in. Yeah. I wouldn't exactly say white, just lighter skinned. Mm. Oh, so the father is African, yes. but is a light skinned African. Yeah, there's, there's two tribes. There's the uh, okay. Aniki, who her mother is from. They're mm. quite dark skinned. Gotcha. And there's the Nauru, who the father is from. Mm. Um, and they're a lighter skinned people. Mm. Um, and the Nauru uh, are sort of a dominant culture, and they treat the Aniki as slaves. Mm. Um, this was my book of 2014, mm. so automatically, you know, read into the fact that I there's a lot that I really responded to about this. First of all, I liked the post-apocalyptic African setting. Um, you're never really told, you're never given great detail as to what has caused the apocalypse to happen, but there are hints of that 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 come through when they um they visit um uh, a cave full of um giant TV screens. Bits of old computers and bits and stuff. of old computers as well, but it was it was I kind of found it refreshing to read about a future culture that wasn't necessarily American, yeah, um, and to actually see uh, another part of the world, and to see the society effectively go backwards because it, it's it's not quite feudal, but it is almost getting to that point. There are there are gangs of people roaming around, not quite Mad Max style, but almost there, um, destroying villages. Um, ca- causing great harm and great physical and emotional harm in the African psyche, um, and I can't, and I've, but I found that a lot more refreshing than the sort of the exceptionalism of the American culture. The other, which don't get me wrong, I love American stories as well. I'm not knocking that, but I've just I it's a nice change. It was a nice change. Mm. Um, 
I also really appreciated the um, Onye's story. She, her full name is shortened to Onye. It, on the face of it, it is the type of story that we have seen before. She is um, a child uh, or late teenage uh, sorceress prodigy who has to be trained in how to use her powers to defeat a great evil at the end. She's hmm. basically Luke Skywalker. We've seen it in Luke Skywalker, we've seen it in Harry Potter. There are even bits where she's learning how to become, say, things like a vulture, hmm. um, which reminded me a little bit of T.H. White's attempts to... Um, have uh, have Merlin train Arthur um, mm. in and and understand get him to understand the environment around him. But what I found what I really appreciate about this is that there is no sense of glory or hope in what she's doing. Um, everywhere she and her friends go, because she's accompanied by um, a group of people, they are not always welcomed with open arms. And if they are initial, if there is initially some uh, reciprocation. It changes almost two or three pages later where something happens. Onye reveals the true extent of her powers and they are shunned and have to move on again. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was nice to actually see um, the, almost the dark side of a Luke Skywalker Harry Potter story. And Onye is a very mm-hmm. likeable character. You feel quite a lot for her due to the experiences of her mother and also her experiences um, having this thing um, almost foisted upon her that manifests in uh, quite deadly ways. Um, that make her feel that she's got to outcast herself even more and then go on and try and do this quite terrible deed at the end. And I really appreciated the thought and the care that Okorafo um, uh, takes for that character. doesn't treat any of this lightly. actually tries to develop, like I said, the darker side of that, of that kind of journey. Um, I, I just want a quick thing on the rape scene, because I probably should mention it, given that it, it kind of does uh, speak to Onye's anger. Um... I actually thought it was very well done in that it is treated as an ugly an ugly act, but it didn't make me feel so ugly that I had to put the book down and couldn't go back to it. You know, I Why st- had the rape scene at all? Why not just say, uh, I was raped? It's, it was, it's pivotal to the story, that the way it happens because of the sorcery involved. Mm, the sorcery, oh, right, the so. sorcery involved, but it also speaks to the, um, the, nature of, uh, the, the nature of Africa at this point in the future. And it really speaks to, um, on some level, to Onye's anger. It's okay. written, it's written in such a way that it's not you're not grossed out by the details. It's it's, it's not glossed over, but no. you're given enough to understand what a horrific crime it is. But we're not sort of reveling in the yeah. It, it's, act it's not it's not so nasty yeah. that. So, so do you mind if I just ask Crystal a question? Sure. Sorry, if that's sort of actually. So uh, we've had many conversations about this sort of thing, right? So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. How did you it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's almost an impressionist version of it because it's not it's not a I can't watch this deliverance kind of thing. Mm. It's a I need to know this information in order for the story to happen. Yeah. But it's not being shoved in my face mm. and it's not gratuitous either. Yeah. It's okay. It, 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 the so way you didn't it, skip over this, but you read it read it all. And, mm. Okay. It was just it was just part of the story. I was just going to say the um the way it's handled is that you really get more of the emotional impact. Um, that Anya's mother is feeling as the event happens, and I think yeah. that also helps wow. as well because instead of just describing the physical act, um, you're actually getting a sense of that violation. Mm. Um, so you can act, it actually it, it does go a long way towards empathising certainly with the mother, yeah, um, and through that with Anya herself. 
Um, and it also pays off in the mother's story if they yeah. go down the track. Um, I was also going to say that there's a bit of a, a gender reversal in the story as well because traditionally uh, the sorcerers t- are usually the male and um, I knew someone had to fight to be taught hmm. uh, the things that she needed to know because uh, the teacher wouldn't teach it because she's a girl hmm. um, and her boyfriend becomes the healer where normally the girl would be the healer. Right. So that was kind of interesting. I quite like it. It was quite meandering in parts, but mm. as I've mentioned before, I do I don't mind it when a story meanders as long as it's interesting and and you kept it. And I was always kept interested throughout the whole book. The only thing, the only thing, if I had to critique anything, it was it'd be the magic. Um, in most fantasy novels I've read, the magic has sort of a system. There's rules. Um, and there's things that can happen and can't happen. Mm. Whereas this, in this one, it seemed to be a bit more it happens in order to progress the plot. So sometimes mm. things worked and sometimes things didn't mm. in order to, depending on which way she wanted the plot to go. Mm. And it's just it's a little inconsistencies. There's a particular part at the end, which I don't know if I can explain it without spoiling it, but... You're talking a, about the, um, the actual end itself? Or? The very end itself, yeah. There's a person who dies who I don't feel actually needed to mm. um, because of... Anya Songwu's powers, she could have dealt with the pers- people attacking this person mm. and then gone and done what she had to do. Mm. There was no sort of time limit there. Yeah. Um, so that there's no need for that person to have to have died. And then, then there's sort of she has no sort of feelings about that later. Mm. Whereas everyone else who's passed on that she's had sort of grieved over. And this person, I'm just really spoiling it now, I suppose, is probably her biggest supporter mm. outside of Mawita. Mm. So it's just little bits and pieces like that that kind of inconsistent that I didn't didn't quite gel with me. But on the on the whole, it was um, yeah, I, yeah, I quite enjoyed it. I was never bored at any stage. Mm. And that was a, that was an, a refreshing thing as well. Like I read it in a couple of days simply because I just couldn't. You know, it was a page turner for me. I couldn't put it down. I wanted yeah. to actually know what on your, what how on your story was going to unfold. Yeah. This one, the World Fantasy Award in two thousand and eleven. Which is, and that's sort of why she's gotten a bit of um, praise. This is her first adult novel. She's written some short stories um, and some young adult fiction. Her second novel is actually a reaction war to District 9, but her third novel, which has just come out called The Book of Phoenix, is actually a prequel the, to Who Fears Death and is going more into just how the world actually gets to the state that it does in Who Fears Death. Mm-hmm. Um, did you say she wrote a sequel to District 9, did you say? Uh, a, a reaction to. A reaction the, to. Yes, a lagoon. She didn't like District 9, or certainly responded to some of the um, negative element, negative portrayal of the Nigerians, and so she wrote a story set in Nigeria. Okay. Cool. Uh, I, because of this, I actually followed and read the other novels, and she's pretty good. I think this should have been nominated if it wasn't nominated for a Hugo. I think it should have been and probably should have won. And I think this is the type of novel that you should probably present to the rabid sad puppies guys <laughs> and say, yeah, you've got no idea what you're talking about, guys. Read this. It's got the stuff that you want, but it's got the stuff that everyone else wants as well. Yep. I really respond to this. I give it four looks. Well, I wasn't as enamored with it as Luke was. I mean, I, I as I say, I, I kept reading it, I wasn't bored at any stage, but I wouldn't exactly say it was a page-turner. I mean, if I put it down and didn't come back to it, I probably wouldn't have been too upset. But um, I'm, so, I'm glad I got to the end. However, I did find the ending highly unsatisfying. 
I will agree with that. Because, I mean, the vast bulk of the story is building to a climax. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I felt the ending, without spoiling it, was highly unsatisfactory. <laughs> um, I'd, give, I'd give this book three. Awesome. Cool. So uh, the next sci-fi lists book will be uh, Use of Weapons by Ian M. Banks, the recently deceased Ian M. Banks. Uh, is he? Of, yeah. Yeah. It died last year, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. Of um, yeah. cancer. This is uh, one of his uh, culture novels. Gotcha. A world that uh, I'm a big fan of. So it'd be interesting to see what everybody thinks of Use of Weapons. Awesome. Uh, well, our next uh, crew pick is Chris. Um, I believe I picked Go Set a Watchman. Is that, what, is that what it's called? Oh, that is what it's called. No, um, yeah. So as I've, look, the, re- the reason she was a bit hesitant is because I've, I've kind of, I've sort of, been, st- I wouldn't say stronger, <laughs> but I've heavily influenced your decision. I, I did not feel strong okay. in any way, shape, or form. I wholeheartedly agree with this decision. Awesome. Uh, yeah, we discussed. And we she's discussed, not making that statement under duress <laughs> at all. Uh, we discussed Ghost of Watchmen um, uh, last. Yes. Last. No. Yes. No. Last time we spoke with Bo, we discussed yeah, yeah, this. Yeah, two episodes ago. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so it, it, it came out a couple of days after that episode. So it's actually, it is actually now out. And uh, and uh, I really want to cover it. Um, so I, I pleaded Crystal to... Uh, I was going to read it anyway. Ah, so. cool. So, uh, yeah, I've already started. And, uh, wow. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, the other option was... Um, Weapons of choice. We keep putting that off, but we will do it eventually. <laughs> we'll get to it at some point, but uh, yeah, so because it would have tied into the whole weapons theme. <laughs> Funnily enough, our um, our top five. We'll do a top five of that episode. Our top five of that episode will be our top five fictional weapons. Our weapons of choice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's I, what I tried to do. I tried to work it all together, but you know. Ironically, I spent a great period of time referring to use of weapons as weapon of choice. And struggling with the fact that I wasn't able to find a copy under that title. Oh, there you go. Because, you know, I'm an idiot. Because that's the next Dash Daily episode. So let's get uh, continue on with this episode with uh, Recast. Or Total Recast, as it's now called. I apologise. We recast it for you wholesale. <laughs> <laughs> You're on fire this episode, Luke. Uh, Star Wars, A New Hope. This edition of Recast will be doing Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope. And uh, I'm very excited to hear the, everybody else's, or mine of course as well, but everybody else's as well. I'm very excited to hear yours too. Alright, uh, cool. We'll do it in uh, chronological. So we'll do Richo first. So Richo's doing the 40s, 30s and 40s? No, I'm very specific, because i got a bit carried away oh, very, with this oh, Okay, cool, alright. Right. Mine, very specifically, is 1947. Okay, sweet. I, I, I was specific to a year as well, so that's fine. Awesome. Right, that's, that's just not what I've got here. You, you lied to me. You I'm sorry. Well, as, as, I, as I was doing it, and I, like, I did get a bit carried away as I was doing it, I started to work stuff out, and then I worked out that this year would be the perfect year to do it. Sold. So. All right, 1947. Hit it. Okay, it is 1947. It is two years after the end of World War II. And director Howard Hawks decides he wants to make a movie about the war, but he doesn't want to do it specifically about World War II. He wants to create a metaphorical story and also bring in elements from things like the serials, like the Flash Gordon stories and things like that. Awesome. 
He's coming off a string of successful movies, including things like Only Angels Have Wings, Sergeant York, To Have and Have Not, and The Big Sleep. Yeah. All of which will play into the sensibilities of the movie that he wants to make. So he begins working on it. He calls it The Star Wars. <laughs> the Star Fortunately, he finds in Daryl Zanuck a producer that's ready to make this kind of film. Zanuck is, of course, uh, the head at this point of 20th Century Fox, and in fact, owner of 20th Century Fox, so he is good to go with this story as well. They've both experienced the war firsthand, and uh, they're ready to, to, to make a movie to reflect that. So, the Star Wars. The first thing that Hawks does is obviously look at casting. Yeah. The first two he chooses to cast are Leia and Han Solo. And he's looking for that kind of, you know, incredible chemistry that those characters need to have. So, as I said, he's just come off making To Have and Have Not and The Big Sleep back-to-back. So, naturally, he's casting for those two characters, Han Solo, Humphrey Bogart, and Princess Leia as Lauren Bacall. Because their chemistry in those movies is just unbelievable and... That's exactly what he wants for this film. I would have been shocked if he'd chosen anybody else. <laughs> Look, you, you can't go past that level no, of chemistry. It's exactly. that simple. Okay, so he has he has those three. He needs his one other lead. He needs his Luke Skywalker. And uh, I mean, this one was actually a little bit harder for him. And for me as well, obviously. But for him. Um, finding the right actor, the right age, you know. Someone whiny enough. Exactly right. <laughs> Fortunately, he looks around at young actors and he finds a 19-year-old Roddy McDowell coming out of a few child roles, looking to do something a little bit more serious. Perfect. But how old is Lauren Bacall at this point? Lauren Bacall is 19, 19, 20 years old. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Sweet, it works. Absolutely. So they're still the twins. Like like I said, there was... Wait, how old's Humphrey Bogart? uh, There was about 15 years difference between them, so... Disgrace. um, (laughs) I think Solo's older. No, but I'm saying it's yeah. their relationship. Yeah, uh, okay. Cradle Snatcher. <laughs> as, as I said, this, yeah, this like, year worked out it works. really it works. well. Really it works. well. So, Roddy McDowell is cast as Luke Skywalker. So yeah. he, has his, he has his three leads. For Obi-Wan Kenobi, he turns to veteran actor Trevor Howard. Nice. Uh, obviously a British actor to give that the real gravitas the character needs. Cool. The next big challenge is, of course, the you know Chewbacca. How do you create an alien uh, of that nature in 1947. Fortunately, we've just had uh, five years before that, The Wolfman. Nice. So he calls on the makeup crew from that movie and Lon Chaney Jr. as well to so, create Chewbacca the way that they created The Wolfman. Very cool. Next up was C-3PO. And uh, he looked around a bit. And uh, this one this one was a slightly interesting choice for him, but uh, he chose Buster Keaton. Okay. Uh, a comedian with the, the right kind of body movements and things and that sort of slightly meeker voice. Uh, now, I've even cast, I must be, I've even cast Uncle Owen. Yeah, so have I. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> and Aunt Baru. <laughs> I didn't do Aunt Baru, unfortunately, but I did do Uncle Owen. And for Uncle Owen, we've cast Charles Lawton. Yep. All right, now, on to uh, the villains. Now, of course... Oh, R2. R2's a robot. Oh, you don't care? <laughs> <laughs> well, for the Jawas, I'm casting the Munchkins, so we'll just get one of those in. <laughs> okay, cool, fair enough. <laughs> Okay, uh, for Grand Moff Tarkin, uh, I must admit, my original choice was Conrad Veidt, who would have last been seen in Casablanca Uh as Major Strasse. Unfortunately, he died in 1943. So uh, that didn't work for him. So unfortunately, uh, well, fortunately, though, he's able to find Raymond Massey, who just looks evil. Uh, 
and uh, filling out the roles of the Imperial Generals will be such actors as George George Sanders and uh, Claude Rains as well. <laughs> Claude Rains, awesome. Yep. Okay, but then the big one, Darth Vader. Now, as per casting of Vader, you cast one person for the voice, one person for the physically imposing character. Yep. Okay, so, uh, for the physically imposing body, he turns to veteran monster actor Boris Karloff. Nice. Who, as we saw from films like Frankenstein and The Old Dark House, is basically a big, evil-looking dude. Yep. And uh, for the voice, he goes for Orson Welles. Oh, Nice. That's, that's, that's almost this, almost the same sort of tone. Yep, mm. absolutely. Absolutely right. And then uh, filling out the film, uh, I'm including the Jabba the Hutt scene. Okay. Star Wars. <laughs> All right. Just purely for the purposes of casting Sydney Green Street. Because <laughs> pretty much that's what Jabba the Hutt was based on, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty safe to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> at, one point, at one point, Jabba the Hutt had a fez in one of the yeah. other Yeah, so. exactly right. Exactly right. And... Um, just for a little cameo appearance in the cantina scene, in makeup to make her look slightly alien, we have Carmen Miranda, and the music uh, there will be performed by the Benny Goodman Band. <laughs> <laughs> and but the overall soundtrack to the movie will uh, be done by Max Steiner, big bombastic music uh, which you would find in movies like Casablanca. So there you go. That's my 1947 pretty good. casting of Star Wars. I would watch that. Well done. Very well done. Oh, thank you. Cool. Now, right, well, next, uh, next chronologically is Luke, and he's doing that you're doing the 60s. Yes. Um, okay. So uh, I went with a, a slightly different direction. My director for this is Sergio Leone. Just thinking of, you know, those vistas of Tatooine and, you know, especially Mos Eisley. That, that's the stuff that Leone would do quite well. And he calls it Star Wars uh, Fistful of Hope. <laughs> sounds like the porn version. <laughs> Trust me, it was it would given that he's that a couple of his films are a fistful of, so a fistful of dollars, a fistful yeah. of dynamite. That's the one that he would go with because things like the the hope, the empire, and the Jedi don't quite work. Now he does a bit of stunt casting here for his Luke and his Leia. He actually gets a brother and a sister. He casts um, Peter Fonda. And, and Jane Fonda as Luke and Leia, respectively, with the whole idea being that at the end of Return of the Jedi, when they reveal who Anakin Skywalker is under the mask, they get Henry Fonda. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. It's a that does, but that does make the Luke and Leia kiss a bit awkward, though. It, it makes look, okay, first of all, it's not in this film, um, yeah, and in, then you the just film. ignore it in the second one. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> right. um, my Han Solo is... And there's a, it's Sergio Leone, who goes to a couple of his old favourites, so my Han Solo is Clint Eastwood. Um, who not quite the wisecracking um, character that Harrison Ford plays in the seventies, but still that stern, tough, no nonsense would absolutely fire on Greedo before on Greedo first in the in the cantina <laughs> scene, um, and has the right level of gravitas um, to pull the role off. My um, C three PO is played by Peter Sellers, who could actually you know at that time was famous for playing Cluzo, who so would bring you know that sort of. Um, uh, would he agree to have his face covered? No, I don't think but so. No, but you, but again, no actor would have agreed to have their face covered back in the '60s, so they probably yeah. would have gone more with the uh, robot dressed as a man. Gotcha. Um, type the robot type butler up. style. Robot butler. Yeah. Um, and my Obi Wan Kenobi is actually one of George Lucas's initial choices before casting Alec Guinness, which is Toshiro Mifune. Nice, because he just has he, it's, he's played the type of character before in Fortress. Sorry, Hidden Fortress. 
Um, it just has the right level of gravitas and knowledge and was old enough at that point to play, because I'm talking the late 60s here, was old enough to play um, an Obi-Wan Kenobi type character. When it come time, came time to cast in the villains, I had Lee Van Cleef as Moff Tarkin, because he's got that right level, he's got the right face and just that right level of malevolence. My Vader, before, before revealing that he's Henry Fonda, would actually be played and voiced by Christopher Lee, because Christopher Lee's got the voice, but he's also got the physical presence. I originally went, okay, maybe start someone like, you know, big and bulky like Steve Reeves, but you need someone grand as well underneath the robes. And you can just hear the way that Christopher Lee would do some of the dialogue, which might have to be changed a little bit. Chewbacca, I would then go with Steve Reeves. Yeah. And I would just get do what they did, effectively get a big guy and put a suit on him. Um, my, I only went with Uncle Owen, like um, Richo. My Uncle Owen is played What's by. With the sexism, Aunt Beru. Aunt Beru. She makes the blue milk. That's it. <laughs> and that's wonderful, really. But <laughs> All right, anyway, um, Uncle, Uncle Owen. My uh, my Uncle Owen is actually played by an aging John Wayne. Nice. Like I said, a lot of this I'd actually rewrite differently to suit some of the, some yeah. of the actors' temperaments and some of yeah. Leone's temperaments. So you would actually get. Um, Uncle Owen's last stand against the stormtroopers. Gotcha. Of course killed. you would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that would be so beautifully shot. Yeah, and and that's and and I even went so far as to not cast the next couple of films. That, that's my initial casting. Yeah. And I went so far as not to cast the next couple of films. Although I would have Richard Roundtree playing Lando when he turns up. Nice. Um, but to give directors to Empire and Return of the Jedi. So Leone for this one with all those big, you know, sweeping uh, vistas, but those great faces that he can close up, getting close, and you know, a lot of intimate um, confrontations whereas with the darkness that is Empire Strikes Back and some of the weirdness that goes on um, you need someone like Stanley Kubrick to make it work fair enough (laughs) Um, and the last one given that it's an all out action fest and you want big sweeping vistas getting Akira Kurosawa wow who was one of Lucas's influences in to do things like the last um, battle on Endor with the the Death Star fight and the lightsaber fight as well, I think will make that work. Very nice, very nice. I like how we've, how we've worked out the directors as well. I didn't go quite so far as far as producers and stuff. Oh, but um, and yes, given that it's a Sergio Leone film, my score is definitely done by Ennio Morricone. No, well, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, look, the producer was just it just happened to fit. Yeah, that's, that's really yeah, that's fine. I did cool. want to point out. I actually did also want to have John Wayne in mind just briefly. I wanted to have him be like an imperial uh, general or something or a guard, just rebel guard. Or something. I just wanted him to have turned to the camera at the end and say, "He truly is master of the force." Why does he need to show up? Is he returned? Yeah. What's the name of the guy that he chokes at the start? Anyway, that's fine. Cool. Um, all right. Well, I'm uh, I'm doing the eighties now. I specifically had a year as well. Like I said, I had nineteen eighty three. Nice. Uh, yeah, I chose nineteen eighty three because nineteen eighty two was uh, a big year for well, it was for my director. So I also went the director type stuff, right? So my first, there were fir- my first, cho- the first choice by the studio was uh, Peckinpah. Um, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, Sam Peckinpah. Sam and because uh, so and he you know he he jumped into the project. And, and eighty two had he had uh, he had um, he had a film in eighty two which I now suddenly have now gone suddenly out of my brain, uh, which was a big hit. So they, they wanted Peckinpah, but Peckinpah notoriously, you know his his habits, <laughs> his personal problems. Uh, he crashed and burned, so they turned to uh, Francis Ford Coppola, um, who only agreed to do it because his his uni friend George. 
Lucas, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, had an idea. He's like, you know, Francis, I've had this idea. I've been trying to get off the off off the off the off the tarmac for like ten years. Nobody would do it. You know, what do you say? We work together. And so George Lucas, sort of on the side, helping him out. But Francis Ford Coppola, the actual director of the film. So, in your version, Star Wars wasn't made uh, in the previous decade. That's right. Star Wars was made in 1983. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, oh, no, it's not a remake. It's the first time it's been made. Yeah, it's the first time. Yeah, it's not a remake. It is the actual first time. So I've altered history. <laughs> all right, cool. Which I assume is the same as everybody else. Yeah, but right. they were all first. Oh, well, that's true. That was before me. Okay. No, no, no. Star Wars was not made. It wasn't released in 1977. It's made in 1983. Now, for uh, so Francis Ford Coppola. So uh, he has come off uh, in 1982. He did The Outsiders. Um, and so he had a huge cast to choose for his look. Right, it's, I mean, there's that, the whole there's like ten people you know, in that yeah. film, right? He could have, he could have had. Uh, so he did. He he. Uh, the studios wanted him to cast Tom Cruise. Now, Tom Cruise in 1982 is massive. He actually had three films out, um, and, you know, well, pretty much simultaneously. And uh, he's just he's just huge. He's, he's uh, but Francis, as much as he likes Tom, he was also in the Outsiders. He's like he just does just doesn't quite work for mm. you know the whiny look. Tom Cruise can't do whiny. No, he's just too—he's too—he's too egotistical. So he did. <laughs> so he did. Uh, he did try. Uh, he did try uh, with a, a few tests with Matt Dillon, uh, but that didn't quite work out. So he finally, eventually, settled on Patrick Swayze. Mm. A little bit, a little, a little bit less whininess, but more actiony. Yeah. Uh, for Princess Leia, uh, he had uh, once again. Oh, there was a whole lot of actresses that were big at the time: Leah Thompson, Ali Sheedy, Kelly Preston. Uh, but he, in the end, decided on Phoebe Cates. Uh, mainly because he had me in the back of his, his back of his mind going, Cakes, sexiest woman of the eighties. <laughs> when you were like nine years old or something. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's crazy, dude. I would be ten. <laughs> Come on, Phoebe Cakes, she was awesome and a great actress as well. So that's fine. It all works out. Uh, Han Solo, you had to, obviously had to go for a little bit older, but uh, he did uh, he did sort of flirt with the idea of Michael Paré and Tom Selleck, uh, but eventually decided on Kevin Klein. Which, ironically enough, who would then go on to marry Phoebe Cates? <laughs> so, well, see, this is where they meet. Yes, this is where they meet for the first time. So on they set. get married several years earlier than so, they actually do, based on your. <laughs> so Kevin Clive Hansel, I thought, you know, he's got the he's got the comedic sort of actions as well, but he would he would have that sort of arrogant, cocky, roguish, roguish yeah. charm that he, that uh, Hansel is meant to have. And he's played a pirate by this point. Yeah, he would have done Pirates of Penzance. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's a Pirates of Penzance, 1982. Uh, Chewbacca uh, casts uh, a young Kevin Peter Hall. Uh, so by this point, Kevin Peter Hall is already, like, 6'10 or something, So and he's, he's only 19 or something. So uh, so he's huge. Kevin Peter Hall, of course, known as uh, the Predator and Harry from Harry and Henson's. Uh, for Obi-Wan Kenobi... Like you, wanted a bit of presence. You know, he wanted he wanted like an actor who who could really pull off the drama, but still be likable. So he had a, he, he went through he went through a couple of choices: Ben Kinsley, Roy Scheider, Gene Hackman, Scott Glenn. Surely he considered Alec Guinness. Uh, but <laughs> then, well, no, <laughs> funnily enough, I didn't. Uh, and then uh, decided on Jeremy Irons. Oh, nice. Mm, very nice. Uh, Darth Vader, like you, went for the I want you know the, the the person in the suit as well as the voice. Uh, now, for the voice, I actually also went with uh, Christopher Lee, right? Because how could you say no? <laughs> the, the voice, Christopher Lee. Uh, inside the suit, um, I had uh, Ruka Hewa. How? Yeah, Ruka Hewa. Yep. Because yeah. um, he's, you know, the body movements. Yeah. You know, he yeah. does. That's the sort of thing that he does. 
Uh, Could be anyone. <laughs> okay. uh, so, Grand Moff um, Now, he, he, actually, you flirted with the idea of David Bowie. David Bowie was making a bit yep. of an acting move at this he point. He was indeed. Um, yeah. In 1982, he, the year before, he had The Hunger. Yeah. Um, so, uh, But he eventually decided on Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> Malcolm McDowell, a perfect Grand Moff Tarkin, <laughs> in my opinion. C3PO and R2-D2. Funnily enough, he found this uh, British actor, Anthony Daniels, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, this uh, quite, quite renowned, uh, you know, shorter stature person, Kenny Baker. So he just went with those. <laughs> Cop out. Hang on a second. Cop out. Cop out. You cheat. <laughs> they work. What's the way back around with them? Um, Uncle, actually, I did cast Art Baru. I like you shockers. So I've got Uncle Owen and Art Baru. Uncle Owen, I've got Ned um, Beatty. Yep. Nice. And Aunt Baru D. Wallace. And you know, given that you didn't bother casting C3PO <laughs> and R2D2, it's only fair did, you cast Al Peru. I did cast them. Uh, so, yeah, so Ned Beatty, D. Wallace, Uncle on uh, Peru. Um, I wouldn't have had the showdown because Ned Beatty, <laughs> he would have just gone, please don't kill him. <laughs> yeah, no offense to Ned, I mean, he's a legend. So, <laughs> now, what I'm is, uh, now what I'm thinking is deliverance. <laughs> Ned Beatty, deliverance. Oh, it's oh, it's just, just taking a shot. Otis Bird. <laughs> <laughs> It's a nitty-bitty place. It's a nitty-bitty And actually, funnily enough, strangely, I don't know why I cast Mon Mothma. Uh, and that was uh, Glenn Close. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Why not? I don't know. know. Many Bothans died to British this In your version, Mon Mothma gets a bigger role. Yeah, well, you know, you need some more females in this show. And shows up in Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, Crystal, and you're doing the, the, the 2000s. I'm doing the present day. The present day. The, mo- the modern era. My Luke and Leia aren't exactly the same age, but they're close enough in age, so it won't really matter on screen. They weren't uh, Bacall Bogart level of shocker. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, and, and I didn't cast Baru or Owen. Yeah, no, fair enough. <laughs> or Moff Tarkin. Oh, well. I just went with this. How did you not have Tarkin? He barely shows up. He's pretty important. He's cool because he's Peter Cushing. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Cushing lives No! Don't <laughs> Okay, so I just went to the, the straight, the main cast, the very main cast. So for Luke, I've, I've cast a young actor who I'm not very familiar with. He was in the, the Hunger Games, which I've not seen. I've only known this, I can, I'm judging from his appearance that I saw on a Jimmy Fallon show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm casting Josh, Josh Hutchison okay, just yep. because just judging from that appearance I think he can pull off the, the, the acting because I saw a little clip and I think the acting he'll be fine for Luke and I think he can go I, I'm, I'd be certain he could go a little bit whiny if he needed to yeah yes, yeah. he can he's a little short for a stormtrooper yeah. So. Yeah. 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 having seen the Hunger Games that's actually not a bad yeah. casting yeah. choice Han Solo um I really didn't think much about this one. After having seen Guardians of the Galaxy, Chris Pratt pretty much is Han Solo in that film. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, nicely done. Yeah. Uh, for Princess Leia, I've gone for Emma Stone. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. I think it's a little out there, that choice, but a couple of reasons for that. I think she can pull off uh, a sweet innocence, but at the same time, there's a toughness about her. Having seen her in that, what was the Michael Caton film? Birdman. Birdman. She can do tough as well. Okay. So that yeah. could that could work. Obi Wan Kenobi. Um, I've just cast Ian McKellen. Fair enough. Because <laughs> <laughs> why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't yeah. you? <laughs> exactly. yeah, he, would, he would actually be the first choice these yeah, days. Absolutely. After, um, absolutely. Lord of the Rings. And now, and because it's the modern era for C three PO, I've gone for as a, he's a live action character, but then he's fully CGI later, like Gollum. 
Yep. And ah. there's only one person to do that. <laughs> of course. It's, it's Andy Serkis. <laughs> right. The R2- man that lives in a motion capture suit. Exactly. <laughs> R2-D2. R2-D2 and then have him do both. So. <laughs> well, no, R2-D2 really only beeps, so there's not much point in giving him a real actor. So um, he's either going to be fully CGI'd or he's going to be a fully... Um, remote uh, radio controlled robot like that. they'll actually build him and he'll yeah. actually move around you know Anthony and Kenny are still alive at this point I mean, you, why didn't you use them hey. <laughs> look I mean I, I know um, the Anthony Kenny I know Adam with? Savage has built a working R2 unit so we could yeah. probably use that <laughs> yeah fair enough <laughs> um Chewbacca, now, I just needed somebody really tall. Yeah. Um, he doesn't necessarily have to do the voice. That could be dubbed over later. So I've chosen someone who I recently heard described as a stretched Muppet. <laughs> I've chosen Stephen Merchant. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, and, and I have to say, he, he, he was not pleased with that description, but it kind of fits. <laughs> And and with Darth Vader, um, I thought this piece of casting was a little inspired on my part because I found someone who can do both roles. He can be the imposing, tall character and he can do the voice. Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, bloody Benedict Cumberbatch. If you, you hear his <laughs> He's voice, in everything. You hear his voice in The Hobbit. Yeah. Mm. He can do the, the dark, imposing voice. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And he's got the height for Darth Vader. Yep. And, and I don't think he would mind having his face covered. Yeah, I know. Given, I love, he, given he did the dragon, the yeah. I love the choice. I love the choice. Yep, I'm just sick of seeing. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bring on Sherlock. I, I didn't cast a director. I'm not terribly familiar with our modern day directors, but um, I cast a director. They don't cast directors. Well, they do. They get chosen. I didn't hire a director. Okay. Um, that, that, that's still up for grabs. We've gone with the cast first. And as then long we'll, as we'll you Ridley. choose Zack Snyder, it's all yeah, good. Yeah, Ridley's got. Oh, Peter oh, Jackson. Didn't he just do Prometheus? Yes. Yeah, but he's also done Aliens and uh, Alien. Yes, but and I, I'm, I'm going on his modern work. Oh, James, yeah, James Cameron did Avatar, no. <laughs> Once again, also did Terminator. Yeah, sorry, I, I'm, I'm apparently the yes, only person in the universe that actually likes Avatar. They, so. seem, they seem to get worse as they got older. So I want somebody who can do a good job. Oh, all right, I see. <laughs> what about the, the brothers that did Captain America Winter Soldier? They did a good job. The Russo brothers. The Russo brothers. Oh, as long as it's not the Wachowski brothers. Yeah. <laughs> All brat brother and sister. Or whatever they are. Let's <laughs> get the, the person who did Guardians of the Galaxy. That's got a nice Star Wars-y feel. James yeah. Gunn. James Gunn. There yeah. you go. Gunn, yeah. There you go. James no, good choice. Well done, James <laughs> Gunn. Well done. Cool. That's uh, another recast done. A lot of fun. I love these things. Uh, I will. I want to see the 90s. 40s went right there. It was I've, a lot of I've fun. I've got to see it. It's brilliant. Uh, but they were all awesome. They were all equally awesome. Uh, so let's finish up. We have coming soon. And then cinema's August 6th. We get Dragon Ball Z Resurrection F. Oh, Dragon Ball Z that? Resurrection F. Is that, <laughs> is that like live action? No, it's, it's animation. Oh, okay, it's they're, it's okay. They've, they've restarted Dragon Ball Z. A new, you know, he's got a, he's got a whole new Super Saiyan level. Because I, 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 there was a live action yeah, Dragon Ball film. Yeah, I saw was, it. I saw was, parts of it fairly recently. Oh, that so was, bad. That was the American one, and yeah. it was just it was terrible. James Masters is uh, Piccolo. <laughs> bad. Anyway, following on the oof theme, we've got also got Fantastic Four. The reboot yeah. that had to happen. Not not necessarily sold on that one just yet, but I'm, I'll give it a shot. I'm interested. I'll check it out. Uh, we also get Australian film Last Cab to Darwin, which I assume has something to do with cabs and Darwin and Darwin. 
And uh, the it girl of the moment, Amy Schumer's film Trainwreck. And that's it for the episode. So thank you very much for joining us. It was episode 150, 154, in the bag, in the can. In the Is that what they called it? In the can? In the jug. In, in the can. Yeah. In, <laughs> in, the, in what? In my pants. <laughs> <laughs> that's creepy, dude. <laughs> that's it for me and the crew, Richard. I got lightning in my pants. Look. Really, just what do you follow up with after hearing lines like that? I mean, come on, seriously, guys, we're going to be clean, family-friendly entertainment. No, family in my pants. <laughs> Crystal. May the force be with you. In no. my pants. <laughs> Don't do it. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to NCP. Thank you for being a part of our crew. If you would like to support the show, you can use the Amazon widget on our website to do your Amazon shopping. If you have any feedback, please go to nerdculturepodcast.com forward slash contact us where you will find a list of the many different ways you can interact with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.